Welcome to Downstage Center, a production of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. We are delighted to have with us today Kathleen Marshall, who is a double Tony nominee this year for the 2004 Tonys, nominated for Best Direction of a Musical and Best Choreography, both for Wonderful Town, of course. And at the risk of embarrassing you, let me just read a few other good credits, I think. You've been previously nominated for the Tony at the Drama Desk, the Outer Critics Circle, and the Astaire Awards for your choreography of the revival of Kiss Me Kate a few years ago. You also choreographed the current production of Little Shop of Horrors as playing on Broadway, recent productions of Follies, for which you got the Outer Critics Circle nomination, Susical, Ring Around the Moon, 1776, and Swinging on a Star, which you got a Drama Desk nomination for that, and... One of my favorites, because I've seen every one of the Encore shows save one over the last 11 years at City Center, you were the artistic director of New York's City Center Encore series for four years. You also directed and choreographed Wonderful Town for them in 2000, House of Flowers, Carnival, Hair, and Babes in Arms. Are, are you embarrassed at all? <laughs> it sounds like I need a vacation, doesn't it? <laughs> I took up half the show just reading your credits, but they're very good credits. Welcome, Kathleen. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. Well, Wonderful Town is your, your current um, credit on Broadway, and you did that four years ago. It's famous uh, for being the second show to emerge out of the Encore series. And for the listeners around America who have not perhaps become familiar with Encores, could you, as a former artistic director, mm-hmm. explain the whole premise of Encores, then tell us how, like Chicago, making the transition from Encores to Broadway, how the whole wonderful town experience evolved. Well, City Center Encore started about 10 years ago, uh, and it was a way to sort of bring musical theater back to City Center, um, which in the 50s and 60s had been a great home for revivals of classic musicals. Um, but the thought was, Judith Dakin, who was the executive director there at the time, and Rob Fisher, uh, was the music director for the Encore series, decided to sort of do... Um, lesser-known musicals by well-known composers and lyricists. Uh, The joke was they were going to call it, you know, Flops by Tops. (laughs) (laughs) What are the Rodgers and Hart and and, uh, Cole Porter musicals that you probably don't know so well? So that's how the series started, or to to, uh, explore neglected musicals, or musicals that were hits in their time that just haven't been um, in the public consciousness as as much. So the idea is it's two weeks top to bottom from uh, first rehearsal to closing night. So the idea was to do it with a full orchestra on on stage, the original arrangements and orchestrations, and um, an edited book, and the actors basically on stage, you know, carrying scripts and doing a, a cut-down version of the book, and then a certain amount of staging, um, which just seemed to have grown over the years. Um, but main, the main thing was to focus on the music and focus on these scores and how they were originally intended to be heard by their composers on opening night. Um, so when uh, Chicago, uh, in the third season of Encore, as I believe it was, uh, the last show of the season was Chicago. Um, and that uh, became a sort of huge uh, hit in the four performances it ran at City Center. And that fall transferred to Broadway, where it still lives on <laughs> in many international companies. Um, we've, we never intended for shows, we never picked shows at Encores uh, thinking that would they transfer. Uh, it's more that, you know, if you build it, they will come, and, and if people have been interested in, in uh, giving these shows a further life, uh, then we sort of pursue that a little bit. Uh, when we did Wonderful Town back in 2000 with Donna Murphy playing uh, the Ruth Sherwood, the part originated on Broadway by Rosalind Russell, uh, it, w- ca- it caused a phenomenon. And we sort of, uh, people rushed to see the show, and people were going crazy over the score, over this music, and over Donna's performance. And we immediately had producers, uh, the Weislers and Roger Berlin, who wanted to transfer it to Broadway. 
and it took us four years, but we mm-hmm. eventually mm-hmm. got it there. So what took four years? Why why did it take so long to, to bring the show forward? Well, first, Donna, we, we really wanted to do this with Donna and for Donna, and she was committed, um, she was doing a, a TV sitcom uh, with Joan Cusack that fall, so she that made her unavailable for a a couple years, uh, and then there were sort of personal issues of her uh, of hers, and quite honestly, it took us a few years to get both Donna and a theater available at the same time. Uh, there was a last spring, uh, spring of two thousand three. Donna decided she really wanted to to remount Wonderful Town, bring it to Broadway, and commit herself to it. But we had no theater available, so uh, we were sort of like a you know plane circling, looking for a place to land. <laughs> and then finally, in August, uh, the newly named Hirschfeld Theater, the old Martin Beck. Um, became available to us, and so we very quickly rounded up the troops and went into rehearsal at the end of September and then opened at the end of November. And and how much of an opportunity in those ensuing years, very often when, when directors have an opportunity to go back and look at something again, mm-hmm. how much was this about simply recapturing what you had at City Center, and how much of it was being able to expand, reconceive, rethink? Because obviously, as you said, you only had a two-week period from first rehearsal to final performance at Encores. Well, the great thing is that, you know, having having at City Center, we had 10 days of rehearsal in it, uh, and for the Broadway production, we had six weeks. (laughs) So it's a nice, a big difference. And also, it's quite a difference when you're... When you're creating something for five performances only, it comes together quickly, and it and it and it sort of just so many times at City Center we say, boy, it's a good thing it doesn't go beyond five performances because it would unravel just as quickly. It's thrown together so quickly that there's really it's built on a no foundation in a way. And when you're going to do a, a show for a long period of time, you need to very carefully construct the scenes and construct construct the musical numbers so that it can withstand. Um, you know the the longevity of doing eight shows a week over months and months and months. You have to sort of take those scenes apart again and reconstruct them and make sure that everybody's clear about who they are and what they're doing and why they're doing it so that it'll make sense to them four months from now when rehearsals are long long behind them. Um, one of the things we thought about uh, very carefully, you know, at City Center, the, encore, the, the orchestra is on stage, um, and we decided to keep them on stage for our Broadway production, um, and we wrestled with that a little bit, but we really decided that in the end, I liked keeping this Bernstein comedy and green score as one of the stars of the show. I think it's absolutely, you know, fantastic, and I, I like making it front and center, literally and figuratively, and also... Uh, the, I think you never quite hear it the same. Uh, you get so much live sound from the orchestra on stage, and when they're in a pit and mic'd, it's just never quite the same feeling. Also, because it's about um, two sisters who come from uh, Ohio to New York in the in 1935 to sort of seek their fame and fortune, they're sort of small-town girls coming to the big city, which is kind of, you know, thrilling and overwhelming and terrifying all at the same time. So I like the idea of making New York a crowded, populated place so that it's always filled with people, so that no matter what, with our orchestra on stage, it's always crowded, it's always populated. So I love the orchestra kind of representing the energy and the population of New York. Now, the show Wonderful Town was set in the 1930s. It was on Broadway half a century Mm -hmm. ago before you were born. (laughs) How do you come to this show and combine three different eras, the 30s, the 50s, and today, with today's needs and sensibilities, with an older show, which Mm -hmm. is set in an even earlier era before you were even born, either (laughs) one of those. How how, how do you do all that? You know, it's funny, because people always wonder, how are you going to make this relevant? Are you going to update it? And my feeling is that with a show like Wonderful Town, it's, it's... it, it's truly vintage. You know, like you said, it was written in 1953, but it takes place in 1935. So it was vintage when they wrote it. And it has an authentic feel to it. And I think you can't really mess with that. I think, you know, true authenticity is, uh, 
is uh, is unmistakable. And um, and I think that what gives it a contemporary or modern sensibility is basically the energy of the actors. Um, I think that probably their approach, their attack, and you know maybe my approach and and um, to the choreography um, and and to the staging uh, to sort of give it a, a contemporary pace in that way. Um, I think that that's what makes it modern, and the way that our set everything moves a vista, so there are no sort of blackouts and uh, and you know drops coming in while things are moved around. Everything moves around in front of your eyes. So I think that also gives it a um, a modern sensibility as well. But my feeling is when you're doing, and I've, I've for some reason I seem to be doing a lot of uh, revivals and and uh, classic shows. Um, I I think I. I approach them with great affection and great respect, but uh, not so reverent that you can't um, bring a new life to it. There's one wonderful scene which I really cracked up, and I wondered, how did the director, meaning you, (laughs) ever have the nerve to take your star, Donna Uh Murphy, and early on in the show, she's trying to open a convertible (laughs) sofa, which turns into a bed, a sofa opens up, and you have her tush her butt up in the air for fully 20, 30 seconds facing the audience, which gets well, a great laugh. But how did I, you have the nerve to say to her, Donna, I want you to do this? Well, that's sort, of a, that's sort of a combination. I mean, we were sort of trying to figure out how she can wrestle with the sofa bed and how being in an unfamiliar, they've just moved into a studio, you know, wretched little studio apartment in a uh, basement apartment in Greenwich Village. And, you know, this, this sofa sort of becomes her nemesis in trying to open up the sofa bed. And really it was um, – we were trying to figure out all the things that can go wrong. But Donna's the one who really sort of climbed up there and allowed uh-huh. herself to be sort, yeah. of, sort of a Lucille Ball moment. I was going to say Lucille Ball fun. or Carol Burnett. Yeah. I thought of the two of them when I saw her doing this. I thought this woman is as good as they are. Yeah, she is, she is fearless. Yeah. And there's actually yeah. a little uh, Ruth Story vignettes. You know, she's a writer and she goes to a publisher to um, to have her stories read. And, and he reads the stories. He narrates them and they're, uh, they're acted out. And we said, this is our little Carol Burnett show. We were thinking, what would, what would Carol and, you know, Harvey Gorman? and Tim mm-hmm. Conway do. That's what we're going to do. That's funny. It's interesting with Wonderful Town that unlike, you say, your work with revivals, a lot of major revivals, you you can go back to material or the material is familiar to people. In the case mm-hmm. of Kiss Me Kate, there is this grand MGM movie of Kiss Me right. Kate. Wonderful Town, you didn't have as many ghosts hanging over you, or at least ghosts that people mm-hmm. could see. It's true. It's not like doing a, you know, a Jerome Robbins or a Michael Bennett or a Fosse show where the ghosts of those choreographers are, are very strongly looming over you. Or if a musical that was, was made into a popular movie, um, I think it's harder to do a stage version of The Sound of Music or Oliver or those kinds of things these days that were opened up into such fantastic films. Um, so in a way, we were lucky that Wonderful Town has was not made into a feature film. Um, it was based on My Sister Eileen, which was a movie, so a lot of people are familiar with the story. Um, and in but, fact, there is a different musical called My Sister Eileen, yeah, after, which Bob Fosse is in. Yes, he and choreographed. I think it was one of yep. his first. Well, after the little bit in in Kiss Me Kate in the in uh, uh, from this moment on, apparently the studios who owned the rights to the My Sister Eileen film, I think it was Columbia. Basically, didn't want to pay Bernstein, Conrad, and Green for their score. Said, "We already own the rights to My Sister Eileen for the movies. Why should we pay them for the score? Let's do our own My Sister Eileen movie musical, which they did with a score by Julie Stein. But it's not nearly as strong as Wonderful Town. So it's a shame that they it was never made into a movie. Though there is, I believe, there was a TV version of yes, Wonderful Town. Did you I, go back I, and look at that? I went. I didn't see it when I was doing it at Encores, but when we were transferring to Broadway, I went to the Museum of um, TV and radio and saw in the 1950s, late 50s, there was a TV version, a sort of truncated version of Wonderful Town for television with Roz Russell. Um, 
and a couple of the other original cast members, which was, you know, fascinating to see her performance, although it was kind of... Um, it was sort of all about Roz in that in that TV version. And the numbers, it was not the original choreography, which actually I was glad. I was sort of happy not to have ever seen the original choreography. Did, did you, though, try to find out what that was to make reference to it in any way or the direction? Um, well, you know, the... the uh, since we're using the original arrangements and orchestrations, basically you have the same roadmap because uh, unlike a lot of composers, Leonard Bernstein actually wrote the dance arrangements for Wonderful Town himself. Usually somebody else, the composer, hands it off to another uh, uh, dance arranger. Uh, so it's all the original arrangements, all the original orchestrations, so you're choreographing to existing music. And obviously the characters in the situations are basically who they were, but what they do and what happens during the course of the numbers is all original. Now when you take on a project like this, which comes first? Kind of like a chicken and egg. Does the book come first or the music? In other words, do you reference the book first Mm -hmm. to get an idea of the story and then listen to the music or yeah. vice versa? Well, Wonderful Town is, uh, is is such a well-written show because most of the numbers come at the end of a scene. So many times in musicals, a, a scene may open with a song and then the scene comes out of that. So many times in Wonderful Town, there is a wonderful scene that builds to a song. So if you just really follow the directions uh, and follow the roadmap, it leads you to the song so beautifully so that these characters have incredible reasons why they're singing and why they're dancing. Either it's out of exuberance or um, uh, or for the most, most time, it's out of joy and it's expressing joy in some way. So it's great to kind of... Um, have uh, have all those wonderful scenes that you know that take you to there, and the Comden and Green lyrics, which are sort of so witty and smart. Right now, uh, I've I've read somewhere that you you storyboard your choreography, kind of like a, a a movie is made, where each scene, each action is drawn out. Is, is that? Um, well, I don't draw. I don't draw it out. Draw it. No, I mean we. Um, uh, I work with uh, several assistants and uh, our musical director or, de- or whoever is in the sort of music department, in this case is Rob Fisher, and, and we sort of, uh, I sort of plot out the, the story of it. What's the, you know, whenever, uh, I always start with the story and the characters, and I find that the steps will follow. And if uh-huh. I'm finding it hard, I always, my mantra is always, what's the story, what's the story, who are these people, what are they trying to say? Because I think if you, if you find that and if you find the style, then I find that the sort of vocabulary um, comes much easier. Hmm. How about in terms of working with the dancers? Have you been a dancer yourself? Yeah, way back. Not for a while. (laughs) But I think like a lot of choreographers, I sort of came up through the ranks. I was Uh a dancer. I was a dance captain. I was an assistant choreographer and then eventually started choreographing on my own, which is kind of a natural progression. Now, what do you look for in a dancer when you audition the dancers? Actors. I really love dancers who are actors. Um, I mean, obviously, working on Broadway, you get to work with the creme de la creme, so I get to work with people who are all technically uh, incredible and excellent and have great facility. Uh, but in a show like Wonderful Town, the ensemble has to constantly transform themselves. They play bohemian artists. They play kids in the neighborhood. They play crazy Brazilian cadets. They play denizens of this hip nightclub. Mm-hmm. So they need to keep transforming themselves. Um, and so I really like uh, I, I really like to have a company of basically principal actors. Who happen to be very who good happen dancers. to be dancers and yeah. singers and yeah. very good dancers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's very different than doing a show in which you're looking for kind of a, a uniformity. Uh, if you're doing a sort of Forty Second Street or something like that, where they're playing a uniform ensemble. One thing that we'd like to do on Downstage Center, previously to yourself, we've always had performers, people who are on stage <laughs> actually singing and dancing. Um, you're behind the scenes, mm-hmm. but you are the one who kind of like the master puppeteer controls <laughs> what's going on on stage, both from a directing point of view as well as choreography. I'd like to play a song from Wonderful Town. Mm-hmm. If you'd like to pick one that 
you think is a good represent, representation of the show and of, of your work, and explain to us kind of like what goes on in that song. Set it up for us, how it plays out on stage. Okay, why don't we um, maybe look at Conga with Donna. Um, she's, because it's a great example of, of Common and Green's uh, incredible wit, um, Donna plays Ruth Sherwood, who's an aspiring writer, and uh, she comes to New York, and she's given what she believes is her first assignment, but it's actually kind of, she's been sent on a wild goose chase. Uh, she goes off to the Brooklyn Navy Yards to interview a bunch of Brazilian cadets who have uh, come in, uh, have just arrived in New York City, and she's trying to get a human interest story from them. And they don't speak any English, but she keeps asking them questions anyway. And for me, my, my favorite kind of humor, I think, comes from desperation. <laughs> and <laughs> I think the fact that even though they don't speak English, all they want to do is conga. She keeps trying and trying and trying, and so it, it just keeps escalating, and it escalates musically as well. Let's listen to it. The famous conga number from Wonderful Town with <laughs> Kathleen Marshall's direction. The zany Brazilian cadets. And much like the uh, the scene I referred to earlier where you have Donna Murphy's rear end up in the air for a while, <laughs> you did a very daring move in this. There's a chain-link fence. You yeah. have her climb, must be 10, 15 feet in the air, in a chain-link fence. Yeah, she's fearless. She is. Well, you know what? Even when we did this at City Center, I had the chain-link fence. I said, you know, you can't do a Leonard Bernstein New York musical without a chain-link fence. You know, on the town, West Side Story. Right, so right. we got to have a chain-link fence True. since we're at the Brooklyn Navy Yards. And, yeah, and in her desperation to the, the sailors, she sort of, you know, creates this um, – uh, Frankenstein monster of these sailors because they just want a conga and they become these kind of party animals and they're chasing her around and they eventually chase her up the fence but she's still even as she's clinging to this fence for her life she's still trying to get her story which I just love it cracks me up did you ever have nightmares that she might fall and twist an ankle or you know something? what she's fearless she you know she wanted to go higher and higher I mean she was I didn't expect her to go as high she, let alone the fact that she's in heels at a skirt and climbing right, this right, fence so right. yeah she's very brave. she is very fearless and you know she just I love it because she just won uh, the TDF Astaire Award for Female Dancer of the Year, which is fantastic. And because Donna doesn't think of herself as, as really as a dancer, but, you know, she's such an actress when she dances. And I think that's the thing, is that she's her, she's so fearless in her movement because once it, when she comes from it for a character point of view, like you said, she'll do anything, and whether it's comic or whether it's, you know, outrageous, and uh, she's just absolutely fearless. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to go back to your earliest days. You very quickly went through how you started, <laughs> but but you and your brother mm -hmm. and your sister were all on stage as teenagers or even preteens at we the Pittsburgh were, Civic Light Opera? Yeah, we were, you know, we were kids who sort of just, you know, sang in school plays and danced around the living room but had no formal training when we all auditioned to do uh, Sound of Music at Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera. We all grew up in Pittsburgh, and that was our kind of big you know, summer theater company. And um, we all got in, and we were three of the Von Trapp children. Um, and we hadn't had any lessons or anything, but we just, we had a ball. And they rehearsed us kind of, it was the last show of the season, and they kind of rehearsed us all summer, the kids, to get us ready. And in the next room over, the um, dance ensemble was rehearsing for all the numbers. And we used to sneak over on our breaks and watch the dancers rehearse. And I think that's kind of where we got hooked. Hmm. And... So did you end up taking any formal dance training? Did yeah, I started kind of late for a girl. I started, I started uh, dancing when I was 13, um, but then very quickly I was taking, you know, ballet five times a week and dancing in a little semi-professional company in Pittsburgh and then continuing uh, dancing through college and, and, then, and, and then eventually got my equity card at Civic Light Opera dancing in the ensemble there. 
but then the move into choreography you didn't you didn't you weren't the classic come to New York <laughs> and try to make it in the chorus of a show you well I, I did I actually was did dance in shows for a little bit not not on Broadway I was dancing in some tours and things I was mm. actually believe it or not touring in cats on the road when uh, my brother who had moved to New York ahead of me as a, as a dancer and performer he had started to choreograph and he um, was asked to come in on Kiss the Spider Woman and uh, I was out on tour and he said do you want to come join me on this project so I assisted him on Kiss the Spider Woman which ended up being his Broadway debut as a choreographer and then you assisted him on assisted a number him. of shows. And she loves me and damn Yankees and then and then started getting some um some offers to go out on my own. It's all sort of a, a little tiny little world. The first show I choreographed on my own was a little review called Swinging on a Star that started in New Jersey, went to Goodspeed and eventually came to Broadway for a, a short period of time. But the way I got that is that um <clears throat> the director Michael Leeds was looking for a choreographer. He's friends with John Kander, asked John Kander if he had any recommendations and John knew me from Kiss the Spider Woman and said and recommended me. So you know, it's it's all this sort of, uh, you know, you get people's uh, recommendations and hand-me-downs and things like that. There, there is one word that uh, is often used in your vocabulary, apprenticeship. <laughs> yes. Can you explain yeah. what you mean by apprenticeship well, and how really, it works for yeah, you? Yeah, I really think as a choreographer or as a director, you know, you really it really is sort of an apprenticeship art because it's something that you can't just study in a classroom. I think you have to be hands-on to do it. And I think that... Uh, that most, uh, you know, I assisted my brother, and he assisted Graciela Danielle, and she assisted Bob Fosse, and he was supervised on his first show by Jerome Robbins. And, you know, so it sort of goes back and back and back, I think. Kind and of passing one's knowledge down to yeah, the next generation. Yeah, yeah. And, you you know, you may, you may know something about dance, and you may know something about choreography, but how it actually works in terms of, of, of musical theater, which is one of the most complicated collaborations you can have, um, until you sit in on a production meeting and you see how to interact with designers and with producers and with writers, I think you kind of need to... It's like learning a foreign language. You know, you can read the books, but until you actually go to the country, it doesn't mm-hmm. mean much. And I think it's the same thing with direction and choreography, until you're actually, you know, roll your sleeves up and are in a rehearsal room or in a theater teching. Um, it's that's where you really learn. Well, and how was it when you when you diverged? You'd done this work with your brother, and we mm-hmm. should point out for the audience who, who oh, may not brother, realize Rob Marshall, Rob Marshall yes. who, who you may directed have heard the of film him. of Chicago. Yes, directed a little movie last year, his <laughs> first feature. <laughs> so, but you know that was a big step for him mm-hmm. uh, in terms of directing and choreographing a full Broadway show. You had done a number of them at encores right. in this limited method. This was the big step, the first time you stepped away from Rob and did Swing Out on a Star. Yeah. What What does it take to, to, to make that leap and say, okay, now I am going to make create the steps myself? Yeah, it is a, it's a little scary because you don't have, having worked with, with, with Robbie, he was sort of always, you know, he was always open to any ideas that I had, but in the end, he had to make the final editing and the final decisions, and also then take the heat for it. You know, you're sort of not in the direct line of fire as an assistant, and then certainly as you become a choreographer, you're putting yourself out there in a much more direct way, and um, I think for me, I have such... I feel so privileged to do what I do, and I feel so lucky to get to work with the caliber of, of performers and uh, and designers and writers that I w- work with. I feel that, you know, I have to keep doing well for their sake. You know, I, if I'm going to ask them to come into the room with me, basically, I want to make sure that, that I take good care of them in a way. You know, you feel like you're sort of the hostess of a party, and you want everybody to have a good time, and you want them to feel that they like what they're doing, they understand what they're doing. Um, I find that, you know, if you if you have a, a disconnect between, you know, how, if the actors are asked to do something but they don't quite understand it, they don't quite like it, they don't, they don't think it quite fits them, 
it doesn't that doesn't help the show at all. I think you have to sort of in a way be prepared to adapt for the actors so that so that they feel confident with what you're asking them to do. Well, and you're going to move very quickly from just having done your first full Broadway show yeah. as a into doing a TV film of Once Upon a Mattress. Yeah, yeah, What's um, happening with that? I know. It's going to be a remake of uh, Once Upon a Mattress for ABC Disney um, with Carol Burnett playing the Queen. Isn't that Mm -hmm. fun? I think it's going to be great. We're we're not quite sure. We have no other casting yet, and we're trying to figure out schedules. um, But we're hoping it'll um, happen uh, later this year. And in terms of then doing the work at the level with with the cinematographer and cameras and, and all of that... That's a whole other vocabulary. I mean, I, I've only other done one. I choreographed The Music Man for television a couple of years ago, and so that was sort of – that's like learning another foreign language now, learning the language of film. Um, but I remember when my brother first, you know, he before Chicago, he directed and choreographed Annie uh, for television. And he was, you know, very smart about it because he went and said, look, he was very honest. Look, I'm, the, I'm from Broadway. I'm a Broadway guy. Help me to figure out how this works. And I think it's – uh, it's like anything. It's surrounding yourself with people who sort of are, are are really smart and committed and who you can all sort of help each other. Um, I sort of – I like collaborations that are very messy where everybody's not just in, sort of in charge of their own department but actually sort of aids and, and, and advises everybody else. Will you uh, apprentice with Robbie on, on, <laughs> on movies now? As you've you know done what, he's, he's um, he, I, I went to visit him on the set of uh, Chicago, Did which you? was amazing. And we've ta- I've talked a lot about, you know, his, his style of, um, of, of directing. And I think, you know, I really, in, in some ways, having worked with him as a, an assistant choreographer, I do emulate his style in terms of how he works with actors and, um, because it's very positive and, uh, and very calm and very encouraging. And so I, I try to emulate that as well. I think that the, the age of the kind of dictator, you know, choreographer is something that I, I think is, is past, I would hope. Now, as was the case with Chicago. Mm-hmm. That took place on a stage as a proscenium, right. as is the case with this show, which originally was Once Upon a Mattress, right, was right. a Broadway show with a proscenium around it. Yeah, exactly. The only is totally different. Yeah. How, will, how will you adapt your style, both choreography and... Well, other, it's, it's actually very freeing because there have been two uh, TV productions of Once Upon a Mattress before, but both were filmed in a studio with a live audience and were sort of done kind of proscenium-like. We want to do this more cinematically um, so that even though we would all be sort of basically on a sound stage, we can create more of an environment where you can kind of... It's, it basically, it's a farce. You know, it's a sort of, you know, 24 hours in a, in a castle as opposed to an English country house. But it is a farce with people sort of uh, all up to something and sneaking around. And so I think that'll be fun to film because you can actually sort of follow the action, um, you know, through the hallways of a little castle and that kind of thing. So I think in, in, in a way, film is so freeing because there is no front uh, so that the, the camera can be involved in the choreography as well. Yeah, there, there is no... A fourth wall, so right, to speak. You right. can make the wall anywhere you want it. Exactly, and the, and with the choreography, you can you can go anywhere. You can turn the corner, disappear around a corner, and come out anywhere you want to. You know, the sort of you you don't have to be as linear as you do in in uh, stage. You know, if you're if you're doing a big dance number and it's like, well, here's the boys section. Now we've got to transfer to the girls section. And in film, if you want to go from the boys to the girls, you can just cut. You don't have to create a, a physical mm-hmm. transition. You can just go to where you want to go like magic, which is mm-hmm. great. Tell you where I like to go right now, back to another <laughs> CD, to play another song. <laughs> How's that for a transition? That's great. I love that. <laughs> Let's talk about Kiss Me, Kate, uh, uh, which you did several years ago. Yeah. You got the uh, Tony nomination for that, for your choreography. Mm-hmm. Um, what, to you, is the, the best number to represent your, your choreography in um, Kiss Me, Kate? 
I think too darn hot because, first of all, Kiss Me Kate was a blast to do because it's a behind-the-stage-the-scenes uh, musical. It's about uh, a, a troupe putting on a musical version of The Taming of the Shrew, and it's a musical out of town, basically, in trouble. And um, so uh, I, we always kept saying, this is kind of about us. It's about our world. It's about a backstage world. And Too Darn Hot opens the uh, second act, and it's intermission of the show within the show of Taming of the Shrew. And um, what I did is I sort of, it's basically a little sort of one-act play that sort of starts with how people behave backstage during intermission. I love when you sort of see people half in and out of costume and, um, you know, and, and, and what their behavior is during during intermission. And, uh, and it kind of builds into a can-you-top-this kind of number. And uh, musically, at the end, we do a kind of... Um, it takes place in the 40s, in 1948, and I, we, we really did a kind of great swing arrangement. Uh, David Chase did the dance arrangement, and Don Sebesky did the orchestration. And by the end, I don't know if anybody really is listening carefully, it's sort of our homage to Sing, Sing, Sing. It's not m- melodically, but just in the way it's sort of, there's a melody that repeats low and then repeats high. And it's basically structurally um, the, 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 the way Sing, Sing, Sing builds to its climax. And about the same length. Yeah. I, I recall yeah. the uh, Benny Goodman l- version was 8 minutes and 38 seconds, and yours is just about yeah, there. This, the whole, on the CD, it was cut down a little bit, but the holdover on stage was about 11 minutes long. Was it, it, was, wow. it was the longest thing I've ever done. But, but it, it, was, it, it, had a, it was one of those sort of nice, slow builds that, um, that somehow worked. Somehow, uh, by the end, kind of um, got people, you know worked up into a frenzy, got the performers worked up. Yeah, as great. I recall, the show was, as you say, intermission within the show within the show right right and it was the actors in the alleyway gets behind yes, the theater hanging and they were out. taking a break yeah smoking, and you know whatever. no air conditioning in the theaters back in the 1940s it so it's hot. it's the it's the summer down in baltimore they're out of town trying out this show and they're all hanging out and one of the guys who plays uh, Stanley Wayne Mathers, who plays Paul, was the the star's dresser. We decided that, like a lot of people who work behind the, s- the scenes in theater, that probably he was a former hoofer, former dancer who now has become um, a, a behind the scenes guy working as a dresser. So he kind of does this kind of little uh, uh, starts this little rap in a way, um, but then with all these great is a great Cole Porter song, and so it's almost like now he's challenged to keep coming up with better and better rhymes and more and more double entendres and egged on by all the other uh, performers and musicians who are hanging out with, in the alley with him. And as the number develops, more and more cast members come on stage. Really finally, I yeah. guess, have just about everybody out on stage. Yeah. And you know what I love when you get a bunch of performers together, especially dancers, they'll inevitably start showing each other steps. Either they are trying to remember something that they did in a show together a few years ago, or they're saying, oh, I remember you. I saw you in that show. What was that step you did? And they start showing each other steps and they start, you know, trying to pick them up. And that was kind of the genesis for the number of people kind of showing each other steps or showing off for each other. Well, we'll listen to the cut-down CD version <laughs> of Too Darn Hot from Kiss Me Kate. Great. From Kiss Me Kate, Too Darn Hot, Kathleen Marshall, our guest today on Downstage Center. I remember in that, in that number... One of the actors on the rooftop or whatever, climbing up and down ladders, looking out windows. Oh, yeah. Again, a very a, energetic number. a three-story number. set, Robin Wagner's set, which yeah. was great. And he, Robin Wagner had a great concept for that, which is that the real world, the backstage world, had to be real, had to be sort of, uh, you know, real steel and, and, and real architecture. And gritty. As oppo- yeah, and gritty, yeah. as opposed to the onstage world where things were just painted flats and you shut the door and the whole flat wobbled and, you know, like sort <laughs> of uh, scenery from the 1940s. Yeah. Yeah. Howard? 
Well, you've got another show on Broadway right now, which seems like a very different challenge, Little Shop of Horrors, where mm-hmm. instead of being the director, choreographer of this big classic musical, you're doing the choreography for a show with eight cast members? Yeah, it's a small cast. Yeah, we've got 11 on stage, including all our puppeteers, yeah. So what was the work in, on on Little Shop because it it would seem to be so much a, a smaller scope. It's very for you. different. It's very much like doing a chamber piece for orchestra, as opposed to you know working orchestrating for a full orchestra. You're now orchestrating for a little chamber group. Um, because I I really wanted to do Little Shop because I've loved the music for 20 years. I saw it off Broadway. I played that cassette tape over and over again until I could memorize the whole thing. And um, and it's you're right. It's it, most of the movement, most of the choreography is done by this trio of uh, street urchins who kind of act like a Greek chorus and narrators and play various characters throughout the show. But most of the time, as they're moving, they're also singing kind of tricky three-part harmony. So you have to sort of work, you have to sort of distill it down to what's the movement that works the best and can say the most without, um, you know, while they, w- that they can still do while they're singing this difficult harmony. So you can't, you know, you have to sort of balance that. So you're sort of working in miniature in a way. And at a point at which you have moved up to being the director-choreographer, is just choreography, does that become frustrating now? No, or? I mean, I, you know, was, Jerry Zaks was so great. And we actually were doing Little Shop right before we started rehearsals for Wonderful Town. So in a way, I sort of felt like it was a great, uh, you know, postgraduate program <laughs> in directing to work with Jerry because he's so, he's very generous, he's very specific, he's very positive. He, um, you know, he, he, he so pays such attention to the text and um, and the truth of it and and uh, meaning what you say and saying what you mean is what he you know is what he always is encouraging the actors to do. So in a way, it was great to sort of see somebody who trusts the material so inherently and realizing that you know he you don't need a lot of bells and whistles sometimes to to get something across if you're doing it with with sort of um, with truth. So in a in a way, it's it's like anything. You have to sort of uh, that's the assignment. You know, it's a different kind of assignment to choreograph a show like Little Shop than it is to choreograph Kiss Me Kate, which has a big ensemble and big breakout dance numbers. Um, and I think it's like anything. If you sort of accept the parameters of what the assignment is, then you won't be frustrated, you know. And going back a couple of seasons, I also want to ask you about the experience of working on Susicle, which was a very interesting, ambitious piece. And yeah. but but also, as was much written about, somewhat troubled in its in its. Yeah, process. we had a sort of really crazy, wild journey with that show. We did a workshop. Uh, you know, Steve Flaherty and Lynn Aarons wrote this glorious score. We did a workshop that people went crazy over. Um, and then transferring it to the stage somehow seemed to be trickier. And I think, it, I, I still think it's a glorious score, and I really am sort of um, wish that that score got more of its due because I think it's quite beautiful. Um, I think it's tricky, you know, transferring those beloved Dr. Seuss characters to the stage. Um I think there was a it was a hard thing to figure out who is this for and why are we doing this and I remember when we first were doing previews in Boston you know in came these little 3-year-old girls clutching their you know cat in the hat dolls and I thought uh-oh you know they're here to see Sesame Street live they're here to see the characters skip and wave around the stage like they do at Madison Square Garden or something like that they're not here for a sort of um you know smarter um construction of these Dr. Seuss stories and characters and so I don't know I think there was a little tricky thing into seeing thinking who 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 is this show for and what's the style of it I think it was uh, a little hard to find 
looking toward the future, you've got obviously Once Upon a Mattress coming up. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, for Broadway, you're um, we're on yeah Drama working game. on a revival of Pajama Game, Wouldn't which is uh, I know isn't that a great score? Yeah. Another sort of exuberant um, musical. Which I was love. also done at City Center. Were, were you involved with that? You know what? I wasn't. I actually even didn't even get to see oh, it. Really? Um, I was out of town. It's the same thing. You know, the thing about those encores shows it's there. They're a weekend, and if you're That's not right. there, you're not there. So unfortunately, I didn't get to see it at, at encores. So this is this would be a sort of rather than a transfer from a city center production, this would be a sort of reinvented production. And we actually have a writer named Peter Ackerman doing a um, a sort of slight rewrite on the book. Um, but I, I also love it because it's such an, a great score, exuberant comedy, and I love the fact that it's kind of a, a blue-collar musical comedy, which you don't get a lot of, um, and about a sort of, you know, a, a workplace comedy, which we see a lot of in sitcoms today, um, but we don't see so much of in musicals. Would you try to keep it faithful to that period, the 50s? Oh, absolutely. When, yeah. Absolutely. You set it in the 50s because I think it has that kind of um, I love the sort of you know sexual tension of of these characters and the fact that they're all working in a factory making pajamas gives it all this veneer of of sex farce which I love you know it's so 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 silly and funny yeah but uh, so we'll keep it in the fifties on a somewhat not personal regarding you but a more personal note shall we say um, we have a lot of listeners to this radio station who are young they're in school high school mm-hmm. college many of whom aspire to work. In theater, whether it be Broadway or anywhere in this country in theater, what kind of advice would you give them from your personal vantage point, how to get into theater, what to do next if they're if they really want to get into it? You know, I think I started off, and so did my brother, and a lot of people I know started off as theater fans before we ever thought we could do this for a living or have a career in theater. And I, my feeling is to sort of see as much as you can and do as much as you can. I mean, I, see it constantly. See everything. I mean, I, my family, I think that's how we fell in love with it. My parents took us to see everything from professional touring shows to community theater shows to high school shows. We just saw as much as we could and absorbed as much as we could. And the other thing is to jump in and do it. Do it wherever and whenever you can in your school productions, in your college productions, in your you know local summer stock productions. Because I think there's nothing there's nothing like hands-on experience. And because it's it ends up eventually the world of, of especially of Broadway and musical theater in New York is a very kind of small group in a way and a little tight knit community and everybody knows each other and everybody overlaps. So that in a in a way you you create a family that you're going to carry with you for a long time. So that the more that you can just get in there, you know, and, and, and find a group of people that you um, that you want to work with. I mean, because basically, you know, what we do in creating theater is sort of make-believe. We're, we're playing make-believe for real, and the, the thing is to get into a, a room with a bunch of people that you want to play make-believe with. But how does the girl from Allentown or the boy from Dubuque, <laughs> from Dubuque make the transition from there to Broadway? I know, to New York. Yeah, to New York. Um, do you they know, hop on the Amtrak and I know. It, there's so, you know, there's so many different ways of doing it. I was lucky that by the time I came to New York, I'd already worked professionally in uh, summer stock companies and done a couple of little tours so that I came with some professional contacts and, and you know, a, a little bit of a resume. But um, I, it's hard. I mean, you, there are people who, just like the Sherwood sisters in Wonderful Town, who get off the bus with their suitcase and, you know, a couple hundred dollars in their pocket. And um, it's it's very daring. You certainly have to love it because it's, it's an unforgiving profession. And uh, there are certainly, you know, many qualified people who are struggling to make a living. So I think you have to really make sure that you love it and that you're prepared to, you know, when you're in the theater, you are perpetually looking for work. And that never ever, ever stops. You are always looking for your next job. And if that's not going to be comfortable for you, you have to admit that to yourself. If you're not going to be, you know, no matter who you are, I mean, 
everybody auditioned for Kiss Me Kate and everybody but Donna Murphy because we'd done it at Encores auditioned for Wonderful Town so you know you, you have to be prepared that that's a part of life is looking for work and going to auditions and going for interviews and that's never going to get easier and it's never going to go away. And most people who work in the theater or in film for that matter don't have starring roles on Broadway. Yeah. Most work either behind the scenes or mm-hmm. in lower positions. That's the other thing is, is yeah, is that there's a lot of, you know, of course when you see theater, the first thing you see are the performers and so that's what many people aspire to. And you know, working as a director and choreographer and also working as an artistic director at City Center Encores, you realize there are tons of people who who work in the theater profession who are not on stage and aren't just designers and directors and choreographers. There are incredible people who work in in offices all over Midtown Manhattan who make Broadway happen. And whether they're working in management or in press or in marketing um, or in publishing, there are lots of other ways to have a career in theater and and still be you know very vital and essential to theater. But in the meantime, <laughs> Kathleen Marshall is on Broadway with uh, with her production of Wonderful Town and with uh, with the choreography for Little Shop of Horrors. And, and Kathleen Marshall is nominated for two Tony categories: <laughs> Best Direction of a Musical and Best Act, uh, Best uh, I almost said Actress, Best Choreography of a, of a, a Musical. I have to ask you one question. Pardon me for this one, but my wife will certainly ask me if I don't do it now. <laughs> yes, John. what are you wearing to the Tonys on Sunday night? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Pete Sanders and I. Our, 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 our uh, head of all of our press who takes care of all of our lives outside of the theater and I are going to sort of figure that out. Couple couple of options, but not okay. quite sure. <laughs> not, not quite ready to, to announce to the world. Yeah. We'll have to tune in Sunday night on CBS and see. Yes, okay. 8 o'clock. <laughs> okay. Best of luck to you at the Tonys. Thank you so much. And you've done a wonderful job here. We'll look forward to the Pajama Game show. Thanks. A year or so from now. Yep, that's what we're hoping for. Good, good. Mm-hmm. Kathleen Marshall, thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Howard Sherman from the American Theatre Wing. And I'm John Von Susen from XM28 on Broadway with another edition of Downstage Center. Thank you.